great to see y'all. Like Emmanuel said, I'm, I'm, I got probably 42 minutes of a sermon, uh, and then we're, we're kind of rolling out. Some people have asked me, uh, so Peter, are you going to do, like there was a professor who gave the last lesson, right, the last lecture. Are you going to give like the last sermon? No, I'm not, right? So just a, a regular in our series sermon, and excited about what God has for us together as a church. Appreciate just a great time worshiping with you uh, through song and Grateful for Emmanuel, uh, who's led many times in the past, jumping in to lead today. And like Emmanuel said, fathers, happy Father's Day to you. We do not want you... Yes, let's clap for the dads. And we do not want you to be shortchanged. And so guys, on the way out, right? I, we picked 18 before. People are like, why'd you pick 18? I don't know, we just did. But if you're a dude over 18, whether you're a dad or not, man, we have a token of our appreciation uh, for you, right? It's not a chocolate chip cookie, but it's something equally and also sweet. So uh, you'll have to wait and see. But grab one of those on the way out. Man, fatherhood is an incredible calling and an incredible privilege that is hard. And so we just want to partner with you and show our appreciation. So man, grab that on the way out. Uh, thanks for being here today. If you're new, welcome. Great to see you. You can jump online, and there's some connection cards you can fill out. Um, we just want to be helpful if there's any way that we can serve you in the coming weeks and months. And so I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into what God has for us this morning. Father, thank you for that incredible, um, meaningful reminder that you are good. Uh, you're good because you so graciously pursued us and have forgiven us of our sins and our past and our mistakes and you've given us fresh starts and your steadfast love never ends and your mercies are new every morning and you are good. You personify good, you personify love and you do everything you can to enable us to know that and to experience that. And so um, thank you for that, Father. I pray as we continue in our series today, that uh, you will continue to draw us to yourself, help us to learn about who you are and uh, what you ask of us. And I pray for the guys in the room this morning, Father, um, and even the people who maybe today's a hard day because it reminds us of fathers who are ill or fathers who are no longer with us. And for those who that was a great relationship, Father, I pray you'll just give us sweet grace of remembrance. And for the dads in the room this morning that... We're trying our best, but we know we're flawed, chipped people. Will you give us a sweetness of grace to remind us that you're in this with us um, and you enable us? And so thanks for this time, Father. Thanks for your love for us. And we pray these things in the name of our King. Amen. <clears throat> Well, if you've been with us either online or check, you know, here in person for about five months, you've seen this graphic. Five months, every sermon has kind of, you know, before the sermon, there's that been an amazing chord progression. Boom, boom, boom. And then this has popped up, narrative, narrative, narrative from the beginning because for five months, what we've been doing is taking a little break from what we do normally. Normally, we open up one book of the Bible and we work through it kind of chapter through chapter, verse by verse. But what we've done for five months when you've seen this word is we've kind of opened up half of the Bible and we've been working through it story by story. The word narrative... Right, That word means story. And so what we've been doing together since January is tracking true historical stories throughout the Old Testament. And we've been trying to figure out how do those true historical stories all fit together? What bigger story are they telling? We've looked at a bunch of true stories through the Old Testament, 
And as we've looked at true stories from the Old Testament, we've also looked at other stories together, some of which are true, some of which are not true. We've talked about Humpty Dumpty. That is not a true story, just in case you're wondering. We've talked about Christmas Hallmark movies. We've talked about the story of my dog Ford who gets the zoomies and runs around the yard in circles like a possessed animal, right? We've talked about true stories for five months. Interspersed in there have been some pretend not true and truish stories, but not biblical stories. 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 In the Bible, in our lives, part of our lives. And, and there's something, I think, from the time that we were little kids when we think about stories. From the time we've been little kids and we think about stories, there's something really appealing about those stories that when you come to the last page, when you come to that last sentence, the last sentence in that last line says, and they all lived happily ever after. Right? There's something, I think, woven within us, whether we're four years old or whether we're 84 years old, that when we come to the end of the story, that line about, and they all lived happily ever after, is something that we can kind of relate to, right? There's something, it, it hits this nerve because you know what? No matter where we are spiritually this morning, right? There's something within every single one of us that longs that our story, that will have an ending where we all live happily ever after. Every single, there's nobody that says, man, I hope my story is horrible. We all long for our story to have the ending of we live happily ever after, but there's something else we long for. We long not only for our story to end with happily ever after. A lot of us are like, we want our story to be happily now. We want our stories to be happily ever after. We want our stories to be happily now. And the encouraging thing for every single one of us in the room this morning or online is this, that all of us have the possibility, all of us have the hope, all of us have the potential confidence that your story can end happily ever after. And not only that, every single person in this room has the confidence, has the hope, has the potential that in our story now, we may not always be happy, but there's something now that can give us meaning and satisfaction and a foundation. All of us this morning, there is a hope and there's a confidence and there's a potential for all of our stories to end happily ever after. And there's the potential for all of us and our stories now to have something that gives us confidence and a steadfastness and our foundation now. Here's a spoiler alert. You haven't figured it out already since you're in church. That's God. But, but here's the challenge. The challenge is that despite God, despite the thing that gives us hope of happily ever after and hope of confidence now, being right in front of us, many times what I want and many times what you want and many times what we want is we want something else. We want something in addition because we convince ourselves that something else, something other than God, can give us something more than God. The potential for happily ever after is right here. Your potential for confidence and a foundation today, now, is right here. But many of us wrongly think that something else can give us something more and so we run to that other than God and as we've seen for five months, we're not the first people to do that. That's not a new idea. That's not a new thought. It's something that people have wrestled with since the beginning. And so we are one week away from the end of this series. 
And so today what we're going to kind of do, it's kind of like this big old wrap-up. And then last week will be the final sermon in the series. We're going to review what we've been seeing and what we've studied so far. We're going to look back. We're going to remember together. And we're going to see a few things this morning. We're going to see the problem that the narratives of the Old Testament have been dealing with, right? What was the first problem? We're going to remind ourselves of that. And then we're going to think about what is the solution that these stories, these narratives have been pointing to. And then we're going to finally wind down by thinking about the choice that we have. So, so what's the problem, right? Where did the problem come in this narrative that got things off track? Well, we started where every good story starts in the beginning, right? And in the beginning, we saw a few characters. We saw Adam, we saw Eve, and we saw God, the three of them together in relationship and fellowship. And Adam and Eve had something that you and I don't have. They had this different type of like, like personal, direct, present with them fellowship with God. Adam and Eve had an interaction with God, with fellowship with him, with togetherness. And through that, they had everything they needed. Everything was very good. And everything that they needed for meaning, purpose, and satisfaction was there. But what we saw in the beginning was they believed a lie. They believed a lie that something else could give them something more. And we saw that in the beginning. We looked at this thing in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, right, where this enemy, the tempter, Satan, came and there were some things that God had said not to do. And then the enemy came and he said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. What he was telling them is like, look, God is holding back on you. God is holding out on you. And there's something better than doing it God's way. And so in that moment, what we saw was the very good only lasted for a very short time. And ways too soon, it got very, very bad. And so, our ancestors made a choice. They made a choice to turn from God because they thought something else would give them something more, and they decided to run after that thing that they falsely believed would give them more, which led to this problem. And the problem that you and I have been kind of having to figure out how is going to fix this, here's the problem that we saw three chapters into the story that sin entered the world and it shattered the world. Sin entered the world and it shattered the world. When you're in law school, which I've... <laughs> done. Uh, in the summers, you clerk. You do summer clerkships. And so I had the opportunity. I forget if it was my, I guess it was my second year, right? You do summer clerkships. I had the opportunity to work clerk with a firm that I was really, really excited about. It was a boutique firm in Jacksonville, Florida, knowing as, known as Bedell, Dittmar, DeVault, Pillins, and Cox. And man, that's a pretty good sounding firm, right? And man, these guys were like all-stars and aces. And what particularly drew me to this firm was uh, they had uh, one, probably the top criminal defense attorney in Northeast Florida and even all of Florida. And whenever the Jacksonville Jaguars made some bad choices, we got to help them out, right? And so I was so excited. So I was hanging on my in-laws, and it is the first day of young little Peter Smith whippersnapper going to clerk at this law firm. And my mother-in-law had made me a little coffee, and I, Peter Smith, poured it into a travel mug. That's an important detail that you hear shortly. And I had on my fanciest little suit, because I was going to clerk at Bedell, Dittmar, DeVault, Pillins, and Cox, right? And so I was in my little car, and I was driving in my suit, and I had on a nice white 
starched. Why are you laughing already? <laughs> Is there something bad about a white shirt? I had on a very nice white starched shirt. I had on a tie. It was probably red because that's power ties, right? And so I thought to myself, I'm going to clerk at this firm. I am the man. I better look good. I better be very important. Blah, blah, blah. Right? So I was a little nervous. And so I reached over to my travel mug. <laughs> time for a sabbatical. You can already predict my stories. <laughs> I reached over to this travel mug, and I'm driving in Florida, probably listening to the Big Ape in the morning, some good country, and I reach up to take a sip out of it, and the nincompoop me, who had put the lid on the travel mug, actually hadn't really put the lid on the travel mug. So I reached up with this travel mug, and next thing you know, I'm feeling really, really hot in my chest, <laughs> because like a 27-ounce travel mug of coffee is now covering my starched white shirt and my nice red power tie. And, and, and it's like, oh my goodness, what do I do, right? And over this shirt is just this massive stain. Now, you could still tell that it was a shirt. If I like walked up to you and like, hey, what do I got on? You'd be like, oh, bro, you got on a shirt, but I think there's a problem with it. You could still see what it was. It, it still kind of had the, the, the form, the shape of what it was supposed to be, but it wasn't the way it was supposed to be because there was a big old stain on it. And because of the big old stain, it couldn't function right, it couldn't serve its purpose, it had to be cleaned. And that's what sin did. It is a big old travel mug of brokenness that is poured over everything. Everything. Everything is touched by it. Everything is impacted by it. Everything is still have the shape of what God wants it to be, the form, but that form and shape is broken. And so God has to start working to get the stain out. God, who's a God of love and restoration and mercy, then does something in the story that we've seen, and he commits himself to fixing this problem. He commits himself to solving it. He commits himself to getting the stain out. And the problem was sin that stained everything. But here's the solution that together you and I have seen for about four months and three weeks, okay? The solution is this. A series of progressive promises throughout the Old Testament of how God is gonna fix it. Throughout the Old Testament, as soon as that stain hit, God then makes these building promises about how he's going to fix it. We've talked about this a lot, so in a minute you're going to have a quiz. Don't fail me on my last Sunday preaching for three months. I'm going to ask you, I'm priming the pump pretty good here, so if you have notes, start looking back. I'm going to ask you about some of these promises in a second, but the first one we saw very early on, God comes onto the scene, things are broken, Adam and Eve are hiding because there's shame and there's consequences, but God makes this first promise to them, and this first, ah, don't show it all. Oh my gosh, it's messed. Don't look. <laughs> That's okay. There's going to be questions about this in a minute. The first promise that he says to them is to the enemy, and he says, enemy, you have ruined it all because you lied to them, but one day there's going to be a child who comes, right? Genesis 3, 15, there's going to be a child, and you're going to get your licks in at him, right? You're going to bruise his heel, but bro, enemy, that child is going to crush your head, and he's going to win one day and someday. And the story continued, and God, so God has now promised that a child is coming who one day, someday, is going to fix it. And then there's another layer to the promise, right? Another promise we've seen a lot together. Anybody know what that second tier of the promises were? 
That's good, right? Abrahamic covenant. God made three promises to a dude named Abraham. What were those three promises? Yes! Even if you're not a dude, get to your ice cream sandwich. No, don't actually. We don't have enough ice cream sandwiches for everybody. Right? God came to Abraham. I want you to remember 15 years from now, when somebody talks about the Abrahamic covenant, people land blessing, people land blessing, people land blessing. God has already said, man, I'm going to send a baby who's going to fix it. Then God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, let me tell you more about the solution. I'm going to give you so many people. And I'm going to give those people land. And then through that land and through a person in that land, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to offer blessing to all people. And together, you and I, for five months, we've tracked that unpacking of people, of land, of blessing. We've tracked Abraham's family tree. You may not remember it because I barely remember it and I'm the guy who preached it. But we've talked about his kids, we've talked about Isaac, we've talked about Ishmael, we've talked about a dude named Joseph and Jacob, and we've tracked more people coming on the scene with all their brokenness and all their failures and all their resting in the grace and mercy of God. We've seen the land, how God got them out of slavery, and then he led them. We talked about being trapped with fear with this obstacle of God wanting them to get over this river, but they're trapped with all of their fears, and finally God leads them to the land, and we've unpacked together, particularly the past weeks, the politics of the land, and the ripping in two of the land, and the dividing kingdom, and all the while God's working. And then God finally comes to one of the kings, a dude named David, and he makes kind of the last big promise that we've packed, right? There's gonna be a child who comes, that child, Abraham, that's gonna come from your line. He's gonna come from the land that I give to you. The child's gonna offer blessing to all people. And then to David, the promise is, and oh, by the way, David, you're gonna have an heir. And one day there's gonna be a king who's gonna be the person who fixes it everything. Not just a little baby, related to Eve, not simply a Jewish person from the land of Israel who offers blessing to all people, but a king is going to come, and the king is going to reign, and his kingdom is going to be great. And this is what I'm doing to commit myself to getting the stain out, to getting the brokenness fixed, to getting creation itself that is groaning for everything to be okay. That's how I'm going to fix it. And every step of the way, you know what the people who were listening to these did? They longed to see those promises come true. They longed for happily ever after. They longed for happy now. And as they longed, as God kept revealing, what God kept saying to them is, hey, look, guys, follow me. You follow me. Because I will, I will give you the happily ever after, and I will give you a steadfastness and a confidence now. They longed for that. God said, follow me in that. I'm providing the solution to what you've lost. I'm providing the solution to what you most deeply long for in your hearts. And maybe this morning, some of you are longing for something. Maybe you're longing for something. Maybe on Father's Day, it's the brokenness of a relationship with your dad or with your children. And you know that's not the way. And you long for restoration and for connection. Maybe you're a dad and you love your family. And you have moments of sweetness 
with your family. I, I, I've told this a long, long time ago. I, I remember it is still captured in my brain. We were in our house in Sugar Hill, Georgia. My kids were like that big. And I don't, it was like a snowy kind of night, and we, we were all, it was one of those moments, we were all on this little blue couch that cost us like a hundred bucks, it was falling apart. And my kids were little, and they were in their jammies with little footsies, and we made some popcorn, and we watched some Disney movie, and the fire was going down, and they were all there and little and snuggling together, and I just thought to myself, man, I want to freeze this moment. Like, I literally just thought to myself, wow, this is good. There's something deep within me that yearns for every moment I experience to be this moment. I don't want the moment five minutes from now because there's going to be screaming and sippy cups and chaos and bills and unknowns and stress. I just want to freeze it because I'm yearning for something and this is giving me a taste of it. Maybe you love and adore your family and you have moments of sweetness and you long, you long just to experience that all the time. Are you longing for something? And I don't mean like you're writing poetry because you can't cope. I just mean like there's just something you can't quite scratch. There's something that you're just like, man, I just, I just want to feel it. I want to experience it. Those longings, the longings that they had as they were yearning for happily ever after, as God was saying, follow me, those longings show us about what life's supposed to be like when it's not stained by everything. About what we were created to experience. It shows us that we were made for something more. There's this great quote by a guy named C.S. Lewis, and he captures that out of a book called Mere Christianity, and he says this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they're only a kind of a copy or an echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, the place where we'll be with God, where things will be with this way. That's what he means by that. My true country, which I shall not find until after my death, I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. See, the longings that you and I may feel for it just to be better, to be okay, for us to be satisfied. Those longings aren't bad. Those longings aren't wrong. They actually show us that we're not yet getting what we're made to get. But here is what is bad. The longings aren't bad. The longings are something God gives us as echoes that, hey, you got another country in which you're supposed to be living. Longings aren't bad, but here is what is bad. When we seek to satisfy our longings in something other than God. It's not just bad because it's like a sin because it's bad, but it's bad for my heart. It's bad for your heart because those other things that we run to aren't able to bear the weight of what we long for. 
They're not good enough. They're not strong enough. They never were intended to be. When we chase something other than God because we think something else will give us something more, that's what's bad. And that's what we've seen together for five months, the Israelites did. And I'm not picking on the Israelites because throughout these five months, that's what you've done. I'm not picking on you because throughout these five months, that's what I've done. Because we're stained, and we're not yet perfect. They chased idols. We've heard that word repeatedly. Idols, idols, idols. They thought something else would give them something more. And as the Israelites longed, and as they looked to something else that they wrongly thought would give something more, and as God was saying, follow me, God continued to reveal to them certain things about this king. God continued to reveal to them certain things about this person who one day, someday is going to make it okay. Certain prophecies throughout all of the prophetic books, the first thing he tells them is, hey, here's where this king's going to be born, right? We see this in Micah. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. I think there's a place in Amish country that's almost called Ephrathah. But that has nothing to do with anything. Who you too little be among the clans of Israel. From you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel. And as the baby gets older, what this next prophecy says is this next prophecy says, hey, and I'm going to give to this king my spirit. Here's the prophecy. It comes out of Isaiah. And the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. Another prophecy about the person who was going to finally fulfill the longings is that this king was going to care for the hurting. The king was going to care for the sick. This king was going to call care for the oppressed. And if you don't think that got the people's attention, they're like, man, where's that guy coming? He delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives. This is the king, the heart of the king, who's going to fix everything. And God is saying, follow me, because that king's going to come. And they're longing for that, but throughout their story, they're chasing something else because they think something else is going to give them something more. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. The king is going to bring rest. Rest. Right? They, originally, it's a promise made to this Davidic king. From that time, I appointed judges, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Politically, he's saying to this nation that has been torn and tattered, when the king comes, that strife, that political craziness, the division, the violence, the war, there's going to be rest. Jeremiah says it, another prophet says this, right? He will bring rest to the people and the country. Rest. Rest. I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. And then there's this really weird thing about what this king's going to do in Zechariah 9.9, another prophetic book, another spoken to these people who were longing to see these three promises. He says, oh, and by the way, when the king comes, he ain't going to come flying in like, you know, on some Tesla. He's not going to be in a big old fancy carriage like Cinderella. He's going to be riding on a donkey. People are like, that's kind of weird. Like, that's not what the kings do. But what God says is this is what this king is going to do. And then, like we said last week, Malachi was the last prophetic utterance. And there's 400 years of silence. Of these stair-stepped promises of how the longings are going to be fulfilled, 
how the stain's going to be removed of people chasing something else for something more. And after 400 years, there's a baby who's born. It's a baby who's born. Who, when you, if you took a swab of his mouth and sent it off to DNAAncestry.com, has anybody done that? I think you've been lied to. But we'll worry about that later. <laughs> How do they know you're part Viking and your parents lived in like Shlakabakistan? I don't know. But anyway, they claim they might know it. So whatever, if you took a swab of this baby, you know where this baby was from? This baby was from Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in those days. The decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the words be taxed. First registered, and we flip on and we see what the parents do, right? And we know, and you can just flip through it, right? They went up and they went to Bethlehem where Mary gave birth to a baby. And if you would swab the parents, and if Ancestry.com works or whatever it is, you would realize that they were relatives of Abraham, they were relatives of David, and they were relatives of Eve. As this baby grew up, he eventually got baptized. And look what happens at his baptism, right? We see that God's going to give the king his spirit. And as baptism, look what happens. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The promise was the spirit's going to rest on the king as baptism. The spirit of God comes to rest on Jesus. Jesus cared for the hurting. This is just one snapshot, right? The king would care for the oppressed and the hurting. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame grew to spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains. I was oppressed by demons, having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. People who were hurting were flocking to Jesus. People who were needy were running to Jesus. People who were sick and who were tired and who were oppressed, they just wanted to be near him. And you know what? I think like 99.99% of the time, Jesus always stopped. And he always helped those who were needy and those who were hurting. And the king who was going to make it right would have that heart. And then Jesus says this to them. And when we read in our Bible, we're like, oh yeah, I'm sleepy. That sounds really nice after my quiet time. The promise was he would bring rest to the people in the country. And Jesus says this, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And to a Jew of that day, that word was not like, oh, I'm stressed out, I need some chamomile tea and find a hammock. That word was like, whoa, 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 whoa. we've heard about this before. We've heard about someone who would claim to be a king who would use words like rest, and this guy is sitting right in front of me talking about he's the one who's going to give me rest. And when Jesus had his quasi-coronation, and when he came in kind of formally proclaiming, yeah, I am now on the scene in big, and here I am to establish my already not yet kingdom, and he rode into Jerusalem, you know what he was riding? You know, some of you, some of you don't. I'll give you a hint. It wasn't a Tesla. It was a donkey, right? We talk about it a lot before Easter. 
Triumphant entry comes in riding on a donkey. The next crowd day, the large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took him, branches of palm trees, and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! It's a very dramatic pause. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And then after all of this and after the people were watching and they were seeing it, this question became to stir inside them. This is a great question. The question that they ask them comes here. Pop it up on the screen, the next verse. And all the people were amazed, not just in relation to the triumphal, but everything. All the people were amazed and they said, Can this be the son of David? Can this be that guy? Can he be the king? Can he be the one who's gonna get the stain out? And then after Jesus' resurrection, this really, really cool thing happens. He's meeting with the disciples and he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Here's what Jesus is saying. Disciples, everything you read in Hebrew school about the seed, about the Abrahamic covenant, about the Davidic covenant, it's all me. And what he's saying to us is Calvary. Everything that you've heard for five months about the problem and how the problem was going to be fixed, what Jesus is saying is, it's all me. It's all me. It's all been pointing to me. It's all been about me. It's all fulfilled in me. And I'm good enough and I'm strong enough to give you what you most desperately long for and to promise you happily ever after and a hope and a confidence now. And so the people had a choice. And the people's choice is... What are we going to do with Jesus? What are we going to do with him? Are we going to trust him? Are we going to run from him? Are we going to run to him? Are we going to believe the lie that someone else or something else can give us something more? Are we going to trust the king and follow the king? Or are we going to trust and follow something else who will only let us down? You know what? Their choice is our choice. My choice this day, your choice this day is this. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? You know, Jesus um, has amazing invitations to people. And Jesus says, what you yearn for is going to be found in my kingdom with me as your king. There is nothing else to give you nothing more. And the choice we have to do is do we believe that? Not, not do we believe we should obey Jesus, yes we should, but before we even get to that, do we believe that nothing else will give us nothing more? Here's what Jesus said, if you want all your longings to be fulfilled, follow me. Follow me, follow me for salvation, follow me to get into the kingdom, and once you're in the kingdom, your job ain't done. If it was done, I would have tractor beamed you up to heaven. But now your job is to follow me every step that I lead you, every chapter that I take you, every twist that you go, every turn of your life, and point other people to me and help bring them into the kingdom also because what they most deeply long for is only found in me.
Here's what Jesus has said many times through his life. Look, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. What you most long for, the way you can get that stain out, there is nothing else that will give you nothing more, something more. Jesus said these words, right? I've come, right? Next verse, flip it, please, if you don't mind. The thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And early in his ministry, what Jesus was saying to a bunch of people, he sees this as he sees them walking. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting another sea. Good Jewish boys, blue-collar dudes who knew life was hard, who had longings for it to be fixed. They were fishermen, and Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately, they left their nets and followed him. I love this line, right? What Jesus is saying, like, you follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. But, but there's, that, that's part of what Jesus makes us to be. But the amazing thing is what Jesus says is, you follow me, and I won't make you just to be fishers of men. I, I will make you. I will make you into the person you were originally intended to be, and the person that I want you to be more and more every day into the likeness of me. But follow me. Follow me. Here's a quote. There's a book called Story by a guy named Stephen James. Stephen James. If you want to kind of read a different packaging of what we've talked about for, for five months, I'd encourage that book to you, right? Stephen James, book named Story. Here, here's what he says. I don't think there are too many followers of Jesus around anymore. There are plenty of church-going admirers, but most of us would rather not leave our nets behind and follow him. Instead, we prefer dragging the nets on shore with us so we can have the best of both worlds. But of course, he says, that never works. You can't follow Jesus while you're dragging your old life behind you. If you try to, you'll end up losing out on both. Every once in a while, I get caught doing it, trying to pursue both what Jesus has to offer and what the world has to offer, but it's useless because they lie in opposite directions. And I just thought that was a great quote that, that reflects the tension in my own heart. I'll ask the worship team to come up here. And the question for you and the question for me is this this morning. Do we really think that Jesus is the best hope of happily ever after? Do you really think that Jesus is the best hope of confidence and deep satisfaction now? Or do we wrongly think, wrongly think, and wrongly chasing the illusion that something else can give us something more it can't, and it won't, because the sex, the booze, the money, the job, the awards, the top 2% of this class, the scholarship to that college, the great new promotion in your job as a contractor, a firefighter, none of it is ever good enough to satisfy what you long for. It'll satiate it for a minute. Let me tell you something. I love a Big Mac when I'm taking my first bite of it. When I take that first bite of a Big Mac, I'm like, "Woo! I need me another bite. And I bite and I bite and I bite, and for about 22 seconds, it tastes good. But as soon as that last bite hits my belly, it ain't good. 
not. And every time I drive past McDonald's and smell those fries, I keep thinking, no, it'll be good. I mean, it's good. Don't sue me, McDonald's. <laughs> but it, goodness only lasts for a second because a Big Mac was never meant to satisfy me. Man, uh, my challenge is follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Because there's something he make, wants to make you into. There's someone that he's making you into because he has a purpose for you. He wants to satisfy you. He wants to use you. Follow him. The problem that we've seen for five months is that sin entered the world and shattered the world. And the solution that God came up with was a series of progressive promises of how he's going to fix it. And the question for you and the question for me is this. Will we follow the king? Will you follow the king? I'm going to ask you to stand up. I'm going to read this prayer over you. And then we're going to sing a song together. And then, guys, you have a tasty treat. Here's, here's what my prayer is for you. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, that every single one of you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Man, let's worship and sing together a prayer about us glorifying Jesus.